I want to ask you a question. My uh, Old Testament professor back when I was in seminary, what seems like a long time ago now, said, you know, I've got a lot of questions when I get to heaven. And I can resonate with that. Um, All sorts of questions about salvation and God and the big whys of life. And he struck me uh, with a question at the beginning of that class that day. I can't remember what was going on in our country or in the world that led him to muse that he had a question. He goes, but of all the questions that I have, the first question that I want to ask is this. Why did you send your son to rescue me? There's a lot of what ifs. There's a lot of questions that we have as we live in a broken and fallen world. But the answer to much of what vexes us, much of what concerns us, is found in the fact that we have a Heavenly Father who sent His Son to be broken and to bear our suffering, our sin, our shame, and our pain so we could be reconciled to a loving Father. So that's the first question I want to ask. Why did you send your Son to take my place? This morning, we're going to be back in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 4. So let's dive in. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 beginning in verse 4 in just a moment. Remind, a reminder of where we are. We're in a letter to a church that's facing persecution, and they're facing the temptation to run away from Jesus. And the author is saying, look, don't run away from Jesus because there's no other way you can be saved. Jesus is the only Savior that reconciles you to the love of God, that restores the connection that we were made to have with God. And you might be saying, well, If I can know the love of God, if I can have the abundant, joyful life through faith in Jesus, then why do we face all of this hardship and adversity on the way to the finish line? It's a great question, right? I mean, when when you come to Christ, you think about the joy and the peace and the love that you find in Christ, and then we read a a letter like Hebrews or like 1 Peter, like most of the letters in the New Testament, quite frankly, that tell us uh, this life's going to be hard. So so there's great joy in trusting Christ, and yet there's also great adversity and difficulty and hardship. And and the question that you might have, and that I know I've had in my own life at times, is how do I make sense of both of these realities? That I I can have joy, and it's going to be hard. Hear now the word of the Lord. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet To those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make 
straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Would you bow with me? God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reality that you capture in your word, that that the race includes discipline, that the, the journey to the face of our Savior includes some chastening along the way. God, we pray that you would help us to internalize this passage. Lord, that uh, we would be encouraged by remembering what you're doing along this journey that ends at the face and at the feet of Jesus. God, we give you praise that you've not been silent, that you've not left us alone, that you've not left us to wonder who you are and whether or not you love us, but you've told us so in your word. God, help us to apply ourselves to your word today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Four things, four truths that I want you to see in the text this morning, and you'll just get the first one for now, but I'm going to go ahead and give you all four uh, verbally, but there's only one on the screen. To finish the race, first, we must remember the Lord disciplines His children. That's in 4, 5, and 6. Second, we must be encouraged by the Lord's discipline. Thirdly, we must submit to the Father's discipline to share in His holiness. And finally, we need to run in the paths of righteousness that lead to the face of our Savior. So first, we must remember the Lord disciplines His children. That's clear in verses 4, 5, and 6. In verse 4, we learn that running this race, you remember this analogy of running the race, goes all the way back to chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let us run. Let us lay aside every weight that would entangle us. Let's run with endurance. And in verse 4, we learn that running the race means we must strive against sin. The sin that is in view here is the sin of falling away from faith in Jesus. It's the sin of leaving Jesus behind because it gets difficult to follow Him. And and the author says, look, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Sometimes I wonder if my sermons are encouraging enough because they should be encouraging. We're following Jesus. He rescues us. He saves us. He gives us the abundant life. He gives us joy. And then I read verse 4 of Hebrews and the author is trying to encourage them and he encourages them by saying, well, you haven't died yet. I mean, you could. You've had your property taken. Lots of things have happened to you, but you haven't been martyred yet. So keep on. He died for you. He took your place. Revelation 6.11 says this, One day the number of martyrs who give their life for Jesus will be complete. And when the number of martyrs is up, Jesus will return in vindication of their faith. These people have been publicly shamed. They've been imprisoned. And none of these things in and of themselves are sinful. It's not sinful to take a stand for Jesus and to be harmed for it. But the temptation is that we would leave Jesus to get comfort right now. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is when pressure comes in our walk with Jesus, the sin of unbelief is crouching at the door. When things get tough, when things get hard, you want to abandon Christ, you want to throw it all away, you want to ask all those other questions and ignore that Jesus entered time and space and history and went to the cross to be the substitute for you. The pressure from society or government or our workplace. It can be overwhelming at times, but there can also be an inward pressure that says who we are in Jesus isn't enough. 
So we, we end up being tempted to seek external validation and credibility and to compromise on Jesus in order to have status or wealth or fame or the applause of men or whatever else we're tempted to put ahead of faith in Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hang in there with Jesus. God does not want us to compromise with sin, but instead to resist it and to strive against it. That word resist reminds me of like resistance training for weightlifters. Weightlifters know all about the value of resistance training. As you can tell, I've been working out and uh, you know that massive arm right there. No, that's not true at all. No, no muscle growth in that bicep. Why? Because I haven't been doing any resistance training. If you want to grow muscle, you've got to add some weight to the equation for the muscle to be built. So it is in the walk with Christ. If you want to grow in Christ, you've got to face some challenges along the way that force you to identify idols and tendencies in your heart that would be contrary to Christ. And you've got to, in that moment, say, I'm going with Jesus, not with the world. God allows you to keep developing spiritual muscle by resisting the sin of selling out on faith. Walking with Jesus is not a walk in the park. It is a race over rugged terrain where we must constantly strive against sin. The word strive means to agonize. Are you agonizing against the world in order to prize Christ? You see, the danger in the struggle is that we would begin to think something like this. If God rescued me and I'm, I'm saved by God for joy and the abundant life, then why is everything so hard Everyone else seems to be running down easy street. And I'm in the middle of a constant toil of resistance training. Why am I even trying? What is the point? If we take our eyes off Jesus in those moments, then adversity will lead us to seek instant gratification rather than spiritual growth. Which, when that happens to us, leads to spiritual amnesia. Do you see that in verse 5? He says, you've forgotten the... Lord's exhortation to you. One of the reasons, get this church, one of the reasons that we struggle with the struggle is we forget the purpose of the struggle. One of the reasons we struggle with the struggle is we've forgotten the purpose of the struggle. Forget here means to be totally oblivious to something. If you don't know what that means, just picture me watching a Virginia Tech football game and Stacy walks in and says, wouldn't it be nice to have football, by the way, this fall? I hope that happens. Come on, Hoel. Help me out, brother. You'd like the real football, right? So uh, I'm watching a football game, and Stacy comes in, and she goes, Hey, I just want to remind you, tomorrow's trash day. Okay, got it. Wake up the next morning. Where's the trash can? It's still beside the house. It's not out by the road, because I forgot I was totally oblivious. The struggle for faith and faithfulness, if we're not careful if we don't remember what God has told us about it, it can defeat us and cause us to forget. Hebrews says the readers had forgotten the exhortation from God that had been addressed to them back in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. You see, when adversity threatens to take us out of the race, we've got to remember rather than forget. We've got to remember that God has already given an exhortation or an explanation of what He's doing. And what He tells us is that He disciplines His children. In this context, discipline, this is an important clarification, does not mean condemnation and judgment. 
If you're a child of God, He's not up there wanting to condemn you and break you and judge you. He is wanting to correct you and guide you and train you. So as you bump into temptations along the way, and you're thinking, God is against me, God hates me. If you are in Christ, and your faith is in Christ, and you bump into adversity and challenges along the way, it is not a sign of divine displeasure. It is a sign of loving discipline. When we face challenges in the race, do not regard lightly, verse 5, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. This means, church, we can't miss the opportunity to learn what the Lord is teaching us. So often in the Christian life, we bump into adversity, we bump into discipline, we bump into an opportunity to be corrected, and rather than listen to what God wants us to know, we get We grow faint, we grow despondent, we grow discouraged, but it should be encouragement to our soul that we have a Father who loves us enough to guide and to correct and to keep in His path. Which brings us to the second point. To make it in this race of putting one foot in front of the other, when we face adversity, we've got to be encouraged by the Lord's discipline in our lives because it demonstrates or signifies or it means that we belong to God as his children discipline is something that a father does if you are a child of the father you should expect his discipline in verse 6 Hebrews quoting from Proverbs chapter 3 verse 12 shows us the reason why God's discipline should encourage us do you see it it should encourage us because the Lord loves those he disciplines He scourges every son whom he receives. For the Christian, God's discipline is not a sign of divine displeasure, but a sign of incredible love. Now, some of us today might have a wrong-headed view of God. There have been seasons in my life where I thought, you know, maybe I didn't get the job, or I didn't get the whatever. Maybe you think I didn't get the girl or the promotion or whatever else because of something I did in my past five minutes ago, five years ago, five centuries ago. None of you have lived that long, but five months ago, however long, you you thought, man, I didn't get this thing because of something I did in my life way back then or maybe just yesterday that didn't honor God. But the real reason that you didn't get that thing in your life was not because God was up there hating you or disliking you. It was because God was disciplining you to take you deeper into the heart of God and relying upon Him and not that thing that you thought you had to have in order to be faithful, in order to have fun, in order to have an identity, in order to have your way in the world. You see, God is not a God of karma. If we got what we deserved, then we would all get hell and we would have no reason to be here to worship because we would have no hope. But God is a God who sent His Son to take what you deserve through His... By sending His Son, He came to take what you deserved and to make you more and more like Jesus. And God's discipline means He loves you, not that He is angry with you. Through the discipline of God, through the scourging of God, which literally means flogging. Now God's not up there literally flogging you, but sometimes it can feel like that. You're running the race, you're trying to run toward Jesus, and whoop, there's a side road or diversion and God will do whatever it takes to bring you back and wrestle you back into the path of walking toward Jesus 
Through his discipline and scourging, God purifies your life. He exposes the idols in your heart and makes you long for Jesus and appreciate him more and more. Look at verse 6. How many sons are disciplined by the Lord? Do you see that? Every son. Every son. And no doubt, every daughter. If you belong to God, you're going to be disciplined by God. Because you're a child of God. Verse 7 says, We must endure suffering as discipline from God who deals with us as sons. Do not fear discipline. Instead, persist through it. Endure through it. Listen to what God has for you in it. Don't allow discipline to cause you to doubt God. Instead, see in the discipline God's fatherly care for you. If you struggle to see God's discipline as loving guidance, then consider the question in the second half of verse 7. I I love this question because it has many implications. For what son is there who his father does not discipline? Do, Do you understand the question? I mean, just look around in the world, and children are disciplined by their fathers. Now, some of you might be thinking, tragically, there's a lot of sons and daughters who are not disciplined by their fathers, and that's true, but the Bible assumes that a dad, at least a true dad, even a lost dad, should instinctively know that being a dad means disciplining your children. Now, this could be a sidebar and a whole other sermon in our society today, but dads, discipline your children. Train them up in the way that they should go. It's biblical, it's right, and when the world tells you you just need to coddle and soothe their uh, little self-awareness, their self-identity, their self-esteem, that's what I was looking for, and just make them feel good all the time, that's a bunch of hooey. The Bible says that a father is one who corrects, who disciplines, who chastens, who helps put in the path. I preached that other sermon anyway, but the primary point of verse 7, is that if human fathers discipline their children because they love them and want to see them grow up and mature, wouldn't you expect God to discipline His sons and His daughters because He loves them as well? Doesn't it make sense that the God who sent His Son to bear your punishment to make you a son or a daughter would now be at work in your life to discipline you so that you would have a life that looks more like Jesus? Now, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, why is this sermon all about discipline? Well, there's two reasons. One, it's what the Bible says, and so that's what we're preaching. But two, because we need it. We need the Father's disciplining. And if you're thinking, I never need discipline. I'm good. I'm great. The world's no problem at all. I don't know why you say the the race is difficult or tough or has adversity. My life is always smooth sailing. That, that might be a problem. That might be a warning sign in your life. Because if living for Jesus never costs you anything, if it never causes you to respond in a way to people or things in the world that confounds the world, if following Jesus never makes you stop and think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and who you're living for, that's a problem. And it's a problem because look at verse 8. Because all, meaning all who belong to God as sons and daughters, all true sons and daughters of the Father have become partakers of the Father's discipline. You can't get into the family of God and avoid the discipline of the Heavenly Father. Everybody who belongs to the Father is going to be a partaker of His discipline. In the ancient world, 
A father provided an education only for his legitimate sons and daughters. He provided an inheritance only to his legitimate children. If you have the Father's educating discipline in your life, His training in your life, His correction in your life, then you should rejoice in that. Because if the Father is shaping you you and chastening you and refining you, that is a sign that you are a child of God. Thirdly, we should be encouraged for running this race by the Father's discipline if we submit to it. God doesn't discipline us for no reason. He does it for our good, we are told, so that we could have a share in His holiness. We see that in verses 9 through 11. In verses 9 and 10, this analogy comparing God our Heavenly Father with human fathers continues. If we respect our earthly fathers who only discipline us for a little while and with a limited perspective, then how much more should we submit our lives to our heavenly father and his discipline? He is, after all, a God, not a God, the God. He is God the Father, the Father of spirits. Why does it say the Father of spirits? I I believe that it The text tells us that God is the Father of spirits because He doesn't discipline us just for our physical well-being. He disciplines us, rather, to, to get at the root of our lives, the innermost places of our lives. He is the Father of spirits. He is omniscient. He sees everything, and His discipline is never arbitrary, but always for our good. Did you know that human fathers sometimes mess up when they discipline? I've got a few stories I could tell on my dad, but that wouldn't be nice, so I won't. I've got a few stories I could tell on myself when I raised my voice uh, inappropriately, when when the frustration got the best of me. Human fathers who love their kids will discipline, but they do so imperfectly. They have a limited perspective. Sometimes they discipline prematurely. Sometimes they discipline for the wrong reason or the wrong outcome. But never our Heavenly Father. Aren't you glad that our Heavenly Father knows everything past in our lives, everything present in our lives, everything future in our lives, and whatever discipline He applies to your life, even when it makes absolutely no sense, it is for our good, and it is always done in perfect wisdom and in perfect love. The Father disciplines us in a variety of ways. He convicts our conscience of sinful attitudes and behaviors. He allows the temporary consequences that naturally come from sin to obtain in our life, to wake us up and send us back in reliance on Jesus. The Spirit applies God's Word to our situation. I I never cease to be amazed when I preach a sermon. I'll get a text or an email or a phone call. Somebody say, I can't believe what you preached on Sunday. And what are you talking about? And they'll tell me what I was talking about. I said, that was nowhere in my sermon. I I didn't say that at all. Oh, yes, you did. You said that when you were talking about thus and such. No, I promise you, I got my manuscript. I didn't say that. Well, it's like you've been reading my mail and you know what's going on in my life. I don't know anything about it, I promise you. But guess who does? The Spirit of the Lord does. He will take the preached Word of God. And I will have no clue what God is doing, but because the Word of God is what the Spirit has written, He'll take it and He will prick your heart and expose things in your life that I don't have a clue about. And that's an invitation from a loving Father to say, God, I repent, restore me, heal me, and let me run the race with reckless abandon toward Jesus Christ. God allows all sorts of things 
for the purpose of our discipline. Did you know that programs sometimes change in church just so your idols can be exposed? Well, I loved worshiping at 11 o'clock, and now we're worshiping at 10.30. Can you handle it? Or is 11 a.m. an idol in your life? Well, we don't have Sunday school right now. We might have Sunday school on Wednesday night for a while to accommodate the government regulations and masks and sanitizing. Can you handle it? Or is it an idol in your life? Coronavirus is an awful thing, but God has allowed it for a reason. And perhaps He's allowed it to shake us up and expose some idols in our hearts and our lives so that we would really just be about Jesus and His mission and His body and His glory to the ends of the earth, no matter how we have to reconfigure our lives to make it happen. He disciplines us. And notice the purpose of the Father's discipline. Do you see it in verse 9? If we submit to His discipline, then we live. The word live is in the future tense. In other words, If we heed the Father's discipline, then we will have life everlasting. And those who are running the race that ends in the forever presence of Jesus are also those who are running toward holiness. In verse 10, we learn the goal of the Father's discipline is not our harm, but our holiness. He wants us to make us holy like Himself. Verse 11 recognizes that discipline is not fun in the moment. It's not easy for God to expose the idols in our life in order to make us more and more holy like God, our Heavenly Father. Did you know discipline is sorrowful? Do you see that in verse 11? I, I'm, I appreciate the truthfulness of God's Word, don't you? Like, did anybody wake up this morning and be like, God, I want some discipline in my life. Man, if I could have some chastening, that would be fantastic. That's what I want to sign up for. Nobody does that. And I appreciate the author of Hebrews is like, yeah, it's, it's sorrowful for a moment. When I, when I used to be a decent runner over at Northside High, we had a workout called the Seafood Workout. And that's not because you got seafood after the workout. It's because whatever you had for lunch, the coach wanted you to see by the end of the workout. Seafood Workout. It was a sorrowful workout. <laughs> I see some faces. It's, it's true. That was the goal. Why, why did he do that? He did that even though it was sorrowful, even though it was painful, so that on race day, we would be very familiar with that feeling. And we would know that we could press through it and it, uh, to obtain and have the joy of victory in the race. I can't tell you how many times I would come around the last turn and that, that feeling of I'm going to toss my cookies came and I knew that it actually wasn't going to happen because I had been pressed to the limit time and time and time again. And on race day, we had victory and we had joy because we had been trained by the discipline of God. Do you see that at verse verse 11? It trains us. It means it gives us a really intense workout. God is working you out in this race so you will treasure and prize Jesus more and more. And when the world tries to come in and tempt you and throw you off and sometimes you start to give in and then God brings you back, He's showing you a deeper love and a deeper appreciation for the One who left heaven and walked in our humanity to the cross and never gave in, not one time, so that He could rescue you. That you would love Him that much more. He trains us. To love Jesus. And that training, do you see what it leads to? It leads to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do you have peace in your life today? 
Are you really at peace with God today? You know where peace with God comes from? It comes when we surrender to the Father's discipline and become more like God as we run the race. Righteousness means living in a way that pleases God. You're not going to have the peaceful fruit in your life if you're not living in ways that please God. And when you're not living in ways that please God, if you belong to God, He's going to discipline you and bring you back so that you can have peace in your life. Peace is found in running the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Which means, finally, in verses 12 and 13, to run the race, we've got to run in the paths of righteousness. To run the race, we must run in the paths of righteousness. Verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 begins with the key word, therefore. And I'm sure you've heard, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you should ask what it's there for. It's there for everything we've just read between verses 4 and verse 11. Because the Father disciplines us. Because He does it for a purpose. Because He's told us that we will be disciplined if we belong to Him. And He's doing it so we become more and more holy like God is. Because of all of that, we should run in the paths of righteousness. Stop sulking about the discipline. Stop being distracted by the discipline. Stop analyzing His discipline. Stop ignoring His discipline and submit to His discipline and get back to running the race. He's got a race for us to run. Verses 12 and 13 take us all the way back to Isaiah 35 to a people who's been exiled from their city. And the prophet Isaiah says, you're going back to Jerusalem, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Verse 3 of chapter 35 of Isaiah says, here in verse 12, we get almost the identical command. He tells the church to strengthen one another or to straighten up one another. We get the picture of someone who's slumped over, beaten down, discouraged, weak-kneed, scared. They're about ready to quit the race. Remember why the world is challenging. Remember the one you're running to. Straighten up. And then look at verse 13. Don't just stand tall. Don't just remember that you're in a race and stand up. But instead, make straight paths for your feet. Don't let the allure of the world take you down crooked paths leading to nowhere. Instead, keep putting your feet down in the straight paths of righteousness that end up at the feet of Jesus. If God's purpose in discipline is our holiness, then we've got to walk down the paths of holiness. And this morning, spiritually speaking, I've got to believe that either in this room or online or both, there are some who've got some weak hands. You're getting tired in the race. There's some who've got some feeble knees. And maybe even as verse 13 says, some limbs that are out of joint. You've been ravaged by some awful detours in the Christian life. And God is calling you back this morning to run the race. He's saying, repent of your sin. Straighten up. Look toward Jesus and run straight on toward Him. And if you'll do that this morning, look at what happens in verse 13. If you'll actually heed the Father's discipline and get on with walking with renewed purpose and confidence for the glory of God, that is where the healing is. Do you see that at the end of verse 13? You get healed when you start to run toward Jesus. 
when you put it off and wait and try to analyze what God is doing in your life and you never actually get on with the business of living for God, there's no healing. But when you get back in the race and let Him clean you up and dust you off and give you new power and new energy to run toward Jesus, He heals you. Is there anyone here today that needs to be healed? Inward healing comes to those who rely on God and run the race. You know, I love counseling people. I love biblical counseling. It's one of my favorite things to do. Hear what's going on in somebody's life, apply the Word of God to their life, and give them some concrete action steps. This is what you need to do to see God change your marriage. This is what you need to do to see God change your attitude towards your boss at work. This is what you need to do to get out of debt and stop chasing the almighty dollar and being able to live for Jesus. There's some practical wisdom in God's word that's anchored in the gospel that we can give people all the time. And you know what's so frustrating? When you spend all that time with somebody and you map it out on the whiteboard and they never get to taking the first step. We can talk about problems. We can analyze problems. We can talk about how we got to where we are all day long. But until we make straight paths and put our feet down in the paths that God has paved through the blood of His Son, we're not going to get anywhere. It's in running for the cause and the sake of the name of Jesus that healing comes. Running in the right path for the right reason brings real healing. Because Jesus came and ran the race perfectly. Healing is available in the outstretched arms of Christ. Perhaps this morning, you haven't been running the race very well. Perhaps you've been avoiding the Father's discipline, and you would want to come this morning and say, I need to start over. I need to turn afresh from my sin and start running the race with reckless abandon afresh with Jesus Christ my King. Then we invite you to come. Maybe you'd say, I don't even, I'm not even in the race. I'm not just wandering down a little detour. I haven't been running the whole time. I've been deluded, and today I need Jesus. If that's your need, we'd invite you to come trust Christ and find the joy that comes in being a son or a daughter of a heavenly Father who will keep chastening you and making you more like Him until He comes. Would you bow with me as we stand in just a moment? God, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your Word. Your Word is truth. Thank You, God, for the reminder that you're a loving Heavenly Father, and your discipline doesn't mean that you hate us. Your discipline does not mean that you're angry with us. Your discipline means, God, that you are providing us an opportunity to look more like Jesus. Your discipline is giving us an opportunity to, to take steps forward toward Christ so that we can be healed from the inside out. God, there are some here this morning that if they were to die today, they're not even in the race. They don't know the loving discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. They, they stand still under Your righteous anger against sin. And God, if they died today, they would be separated from Your love forever. Never knowing what it is to have a loving Heavenly Father who gives us a purpose and gives us a mission and gives us a Savior and then puts us in a race to put one foot in front of the other until you call us home or come again. So God, I, I pray for the soul that needs to be rescued today. God, that they would give up on taking their own path. 
And that they would surrender their lives to Jesus and trust in the One who ran the paths of righteousness for them. And God, I also pray for the one who is a son or a daughter who's being disciplined and they just need to surrender and take that next step in the race. God, have Your will and Your way as we sing this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.